Hello and welcome back to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. The NHS is feeling the strain as beds fill up and UK deaths from coronavirus reach more than 1,500 in one day. Everyone's debating what exactly is allowed under the regulations on daily exercise, and the government is anxiously trying to devise free school meals that footballer Marcus Rashford thinks are up to scratch. 2021 is sounding rather like 2020, isn't it? Except that the vaccine is here and people are receiving it on a scale greater than the rest of Europe put together. We'll catch up on the government's very mixed start to the year. In a few months, the government will face the electorate for the first time since Boris Johnson secured that 80-seat majority. Or will it? Local elections, mayoral elections, elections in Scotland and Wales could be postponed. Should they be? And how should they take place? And this week, the IFG publishes another round of our Ministers Reflect interviews, among them the very detailed thoughts of former Home Secretary Amber Rudd and former Commons leader Andrea Leadsom. We'll discuss what they reveal. Joining me in the virtual studio today is Alex Thomas, who leads our work on the civil service. Hi, Alex. Hi, Bronwyn. Nick Davies, who runs our public services team. Hi, Nick. Hi, Bronwyn. Good to have you with us. And I'm delighted to be joined as well by Kate Proctor, political editor at Politics Home, the political website. Hi, Kate. Great to have you with us today. Hello. How's 2021 working out for you so far? Well, it's a bit bleak and miserable over here in uh, East London. It's very rainy today, but, you know, we soldier on working from home. (laughs) I can't promise we're going to offer loads of of cheer, but um, uh, we'll try and offer a bit at least. Let's kick off with the first subject on the NHS and vaccines. Well, the NHS, as we keep being told, is close to being overwhelmed and the government is trying to extract more compliance from people on coronavirus rules. The Prime Minister has, in effect, apologised for the paltry content of food parcels, pictures all over social media this week. On the other hand, the vaccine rollout has been a triumph by the standards of most countries, a faster rate than any country except Israel. Alex, what do you make of it? Are they getting the big things right or struggling to hold it all together? Well, both at the moment. It feels like, as you say, there are, you know, there are some successes. The vaccine rollout and, um, you know, economic support for businesses continues. I I do have a slight sense that the government isn't quite selling that and presenting that as uh, strongly as they might. There's been quite a lot of uh, uh, criticism over lack of information about vaccine rollout, both giving people hope and giving people information. The extraordinary thing, uh, really, though, as as we and others have been commenting on, is how there does seem to be a failure, both sort of coming from the Prime Minister and the Cabinet, to anticipate some of the challenges that they're going to face. So, you know, sitting here in late December, we uh, could anticipate that um, some of the challenges around the NHS and, and, and beds were going to happen. And, and, and there does seem to be a repeated failure to be able to sort of throw yourself forward, anticipate the problems that are going to occur in following weeks and months, and really think through the consequences of some of the decisions that the government's making. And we're also seeing that, not to go into it in detail uh, here, but on on some of the Brexit Northern Ireland questions uh, that are uh, and, and, and challenges with food supply and, and so on. So uh, definitely a, a mixed picture, I think. Nick, just take us into this point about the NHS, because we were told repeatedly that it's on the edge of, 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 of real crisis. It is trying to do a lot more than in the first lockdown, isn't it? It's trying to keep up a certain number of uh, ordinary operations and ordinary treatment as well as, as, the, as the coronavirus stuff. What, what should we make of this? Is, the, is it the government really, really trying to get people to comply with the rules uh, or is the NHS on the point of falling over? So look, I think the the next two weeks in particular are going to be very difficult indeed, as that's the period where those who are infected 
uh, over Christmas are going to be hospitalised, building on the already uh, huge numbers of people who are in hospital um, with um, coronavirus. It's certainly true that the NHS is trying to continue uh, to do as much kind of as its business as usual work. It was trying to do that through the first lockdown as well, but um, clearly due to the need to reorganise hospitals, to reallocate staff, and also, frankly, because people don't really want to go to hospital um, given the risks of infection at the moment. Far fewer people are being seen um, for non-COVID conditions than they normally would. Are we seeing a Christmas spike? Are we seeing some of the consequences of people being allowed to mix for that one day that it turned out to be? So we certainly, fingers crossed, we seem to have ha- we seem to have hit the spike in new infections in the last few days, and now dropping down a bit. Hopefully, that trend will continue in the next few days. Uh, we probably aren't quite yet at the spike uh, or the peak um, for hospitalisations, and then again, it will be some time further before we uh, hit the peak um, of deaths. Unfortunately. Right, well, thanks for that, Kate. Where, where's your mental scorecard of the government's start to the year? Well, I think it's been pretty poor. Um, we've seen that from the very dramatic and chaotic school closures. Um, I don't think uh, the Prime Minister gave a particularly account of what's happening in front of um, the Liaison Select Committee yesterday. And although I think the vaccine rollout is extremely impressive, and of course, when we compare that to um, other countries, it is really remarkable. Very pleased to think that my parents might be vaccinated soon. I would say that there hasn't been a great deal of information exactly around the numbers, how many people are being vaccinated. That's taken a while to to come out. But, you know, I think it's been a chaotic, bumpy start. And I guess, you know, 2021 is, you know, showing all the signs of that have the hallmarks of the 2020 style, which I think we can all agree is pretty chaotic as well. Yeah, no, we're not discussing Brexit in this in, in this uh, podcast that we have on many, many others. But uh, of course, that's one thing that has gone so far comparatively smoothly. Kate, just take us into a bit the, the, the food hampers uh, row, uh, sure. where, where that came from. You've been writing a lot about it. <laughs> Well, so schools closed uh, very suddenly for primary school children. Um, they just had one day back uh, in, in some parts of the country. And then after that, um, there, there was the commitment to give children free school meals um, during this lockdown. And that meant that schools um, were encouraged to move to, to a parcel model. So use their existing caterers to um, pack a free school meal parcel to give out to families once a week. Um, and the contents of these boxes have just been abysmal in some cases. Politics Home reported on um, a parcel that really didn't seem to meet standards at all um, in terms of protein, in terms of dairy. But, you know, what upset parents? Are or, or, or in terms of sheer value, isn't it? I mean, that's part of what we're laying it out and saying, look, this, this looks like five pounds worth of stuff, not, not 20 or 30. Well, it's supposed to be £15 a ch- uh, per child per week, and it would be debatable, you know, from some of the pictures that I've, I've seen, whether it, it comes anywhere close to that. Uh, one school that we looked at was, was giving out bread mixes so families could uh, bake their own bread. And actually, what I what I learned from this, it's not just the contents, but actually the way parents are being asked to cook is actually not very economical. So there were lots of concerns, you know, if your electricity is on a, a meter that you'd have to put the oven on just to bake one baked potato. So... There was concerns from nutritional point of view, but also whether families could afford to cook in this way. So the voucher scheme is what they want. And it looks as why, why didn't the government stick with the voucher scheme, which it had in the first lockdown? You know, it's really confusing as to why they didn't do it. I assume they just didn't roll it out quick enough. And it adds to the clearly they didn't plan on closing schools that or they held off until the very last moment, which meant that the infrastructure 
behind all of that, the free school meal vouchers wasn't in place either. And I'd say that's a huge oversight. There should have been a mechanism in place that as soon as you shut schools, the vouchers are available the next day. I don't understand why that's not possible and why we've had this two week period of families being given these really substandard boxes of food. Schools have some discretion, don't they? I mean, while the government is urging them to do food parcels, uh, they do have the choice and some stuck with vouchers all the way through. So they could have they could have said, "Look, um, no, we're going to do vouchers. It's simpler and it's it's better." Well, schools could have come up with their own voucher system, and lots of them have done that. But also in the initial guidance from January the fourth, you know, it was suggested that the parcel was a good solution, um, and schools were it was suggested that they try and do that in the first instance. And part of that was because of food supplies had already been bought in for uh, cooked dinners. So in some cases, they were trying to just use up the supplies that they had by putting them into the boxes. And I just think, you know, from um, your school does have a lot of discretion over this. And I feel like some of the schools have really put the blame on the caterers and saying, oh, well, we didn't really know much about this. But I think it's, you know, it's a it's a bit more of a group effort to make sure that your pupils are, are being fed correctly. Yeah, we'll, we'll have to see now. Alex, so Michael Barber has been brought in to conduct a review. Uh, it wouldn't be the first thing called the Barber Review. Mm. And Downing Street says this is going to ensure the government remains focused, effective and efficient. People who don't obsessively follow reviews of government effectiveness, and there are some, can you just tell us who Michael Barber is and is this significant and is it going to sort out problems like the one that Kate has just been describing? Yeah, I, I can't imagine there's anybody who doesn't uh, uh, obsessively follow government reviews. But for that one person who, who doesn't, Michael Barber is a character that's cropped up in various different guises over the course of the last 20 years or so in UK government. He was originally a, an educationalist and involved in delivery around uh, schools. He was an advisor to education secretaries in the early years of the Labour government after 1997. Then Tony Blair brought him in to create what was called the Prime Minister's Delivery Unit. Uh, and that lasted for five years or so under Michael Barber and then under successive uh, heads. And it had a reputation for identifying the priorities of the Prime Minister and the kind of core objectives of a government, using data then, drawing data together into the centre of government um, and uh, then holding departments and secretaries of state to account for delivering them. And so Michael Barber was the person who came up with this structure of a delivery unit uh, and has subsequently published things on, as he calls it, deliverology or um, related things. So he's uh, he's, he's also been uh, chair of the Office for Students um, for the last few years. Uh, one of the interesting things is he had, in the early coalition years, the sort of Barbara model had gone out of fashion a little bit. David Cameron got rid of the Prime Minister's delivery unit. There was a sense that this approach was less in favour. It's clearly come back in, in recent months. He's, and back, he's back in fashion now. He's back, um, he's back in fashion this emphasis on delivering things, what, what, what are the kind of problems this might conceivably fix? This government coming in, and I was going to sort of make the comparison between Michael Barber and Dominic Cummings, who are actually quite interested in sort of similar sorts of things, as I say, drawing together data, holding civil servants and ministers to account for uh, delivering stuff. But Michael Barber is a much more establishment figure, uh, not the weirdos and misfits uh, style. So what I think Boris Johnson and Simon Case, the still relatively new cabinet secretary, will be looking to Michael Barber to do is to make recommendations to strengthen the cabinet office, improve the machinery at the heart of government, that this government came in and found that the it was it was pulling the levers, to use that slightly overworked analogy, but nothing was happening. So what they all want to do for all of these decisions, whether it's you know, vaccine rollout or um, uh, educational stuff, but also looking beyond COVID to levelling up and the uh, broader agenda that this government has, to be able to set a direction from the centre, agree with secretaries of state and departments what they should be delivering, uh, and then keep checking in over 
in, at regular intervals on, on whether they're doing it. The critical kind of final point, and then I'll uh, uh, shut up about the uh, barber delivery world, is um, it will require prime ministerial attention. If they want to um, bring this model in, Boris Johnson is going to need to invest uh, his own personal time in it. That's what Tony Blair did, and that's what made it uh, work. So a lot of this still comes back to the sort of character and, and style of, of Boris Johnson as, as prime minister. Yeah. You can't just bring in a fixed person. Sorry, Nick, go on. I was just going to say, I think it is worth flagging that Barber has been back for a little while. Um, so he did a review for the government in 2017 uh, and produced what was called the public value framework. Uh, and in the spending review uh, that happened just before Christmas, the government set out um, three or four outcomes uh, for every department. Uh, and then a week later, published initial indicators that would be used to assess against that. And that has all uh, flowed from Barber's work. So, it, and, and in many ways, the, the, the public value framework, he says, can be used as a way to do kind of short, sharp reviews of particular delivery issues. So, it, I don't think it's entirely surprising that the government has therefore turned to their kind of deliveries are effectively to come in and review the, the biggest issues they're facing at the moment. So one of the few people who's managed to bridge the Theresa May, Boris Johnson government. uh, We don't uh, need to develop it all now, but his value uh, framework was very, very complicated. Um, I know a lot of people felt with many pillars and so on, but uh, but you're absolutely right. He he has been dug in there for some time. While as we put this out, Dominic Cummings is indeed still out of fashion. Nick, just briefly on this, looking further ahead, I mean, the, the NHS is going to, if the vaccine rollout is a success, get through this crisis but then what 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 should we expect the impact of all this to be on the the health service so i highlight two longer-term consequences backlogs uh, and burnout uh, so taking backlogs first due to the need to focus on the pandemic response and as i mentioned um, people being more reluctant to visit healthcare services uh, there's been a dramatic fall in most types of NHS activity um, over the past year. And as a result, uh, backlogs and unmet needs have grown. So, for example, on the eve of the crisis, fewer than 2,000 people had waited longer than a year for an elective operation following a GP referral. And that has gone up from 2,000 to more than 160,000 have now waited more than a year. Um, the other issue is burnout. So, NHS staff, particularly frontline staff in hospitals, have been working extra hours in hugely difficult conditions for more than a year, having entered the crisis with tens of thousands of vacancies. Uh, that's not sustainable, and you could therefore see you know, more staff taking early retirement or otherwise leaving the NHS, which will uh, make it even harder for the government to meet the uh, staffing targets that it has, for example, to increase the number of nurses by 50,000. Let's turn to our second subject, and that's the elections coming and the possible delay in those elections. Um, they're supposed to be in May, mayoral elections, local elections, big votes in Scotland and Wales. Many people across the UK are meant to be going to the polls. But how do polling stations, voting queues, shared stubby pencils, all that work in a pandemic? There's talk of delaying them till June, maybe even later in the year. And some of these elections, remember, have already been postponed from last year. So let's talk about whether it's the right thing to do and what can be done to avoid it. Joining us now is Akash Pound, who's a, a senior fellow at the IFG, an expert on all things devolved from West, Westminster. Hi, Akash. Hi, Roman. Akash, uh, you were writing for us this week on this subject, saying there's plenty the government can do to prepare for the elections. What's that? 
Yeah, so the, 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 the elections, as you say, are now um, just under four months away. As things stand now with the, with the, the level of infections um, we've been seeing in, in, in recent uh, weeks, I think it's understandable that there's been a lot of talk of uh, whether the elections can go ahead safely. Things could feel quite different um, by early May if the, if the vaccination programme goes to plan and if we do start to see the effects of that and the current lockdown by the early spring. So I don't think it's inevitable that the elections will have to be pushed back. And therefore, I do think it's very important that the government, and it's not just the UK government, it's the, the UK government with regard to the local elections in England and police and crime commissioner elections, and it's also the Scottish and Welsh governments who have responsibility for their own polls. It's right that they should all be taking steps now to to be ready to hold an election uh, amid a pandemic. It's not going to be over whenever these polls happen. So there are different things they can do. Obviously, the polling stations will have to be set up to be COVID secure with screens and social distancing, training for staff to, to, to enforce those rules. In addition, there are ideas being discussed, such as potentially a move to all postal voting. That's something that the Scottish government has, has introduced legislation to uh, potentially enable. There's also the option of spreading vote, spreading the vote over um, a few days um, so that we can have um, early voting as, as, as we saw, of course, in America on quite a big scale um, during their own presidential and congressional elections. So, you know, there are things that I think yeah. the government should be uh, thinking about right now. Mm. It's interesting you raised the American case because, of course, postal voting was one of the things that is so... Uh, enraged uh, Trump and his supporters feeling that those votes in some way were illegitimate. And so, I mean, without uh, thinking that we would import all that, uh, the government might have to go through quite a bit of reassurance to um, persuade people that it, uh, the, the, the vote was um, was secure and legitimate. Kate, just take us into a bit. How, how much do these elections matter? Well, of course, any democratic election matters hugely, and it matters this time around because it, it would determine, you know, in England, who would be the mayor of London, other regional mayors, and also um, English local authorities as well. Um, it determines who's in charge. And obviously, the coronavirus response depends so much on health and your local council playing a significant part. So of course, it matters who's in charge. Um, I'm a little bit less optimistic that these elections this year will go ahead. I think postal voting um, does obviously come with some of the concerns that were raised in America, although I don't think that would be transported over here completely. But um, really just burdening the, the post service at the moment. We've already have had significant delays and problems and Royal Mail. It, I mean, I think it is struggling. I think we, we've all probably got anecdotes about things that um, have taken a very long time to arrive. Um, I would just wonder logistically whether running postal elections um, is is really going to work smoothly um, at this particular point in time. And I cannot imagine people getting back to polling stations at all. I mean, do you have to disinfect the pen or the pencil you use every time? Um, how do you wipe down a booth? I just think the logistics of it are so enormous. Um, but obviously, you're going to end up with some people running into six-year terms, like Sadiq Khan for the Mayor of London. And I'm sure he'd actually quite like the election to happen. Um, and I'm sure there's many councillors who also just want to stop being councillors and, and move on. And, and they are looking at uh, doing another 12 months. Get me out of here, um, Brigade. Akash, who decides whether to delay the different elections? 
Well, as I mentioned, um, the, the, the different elections are within the control of, of the different governments. So as far as the Scottish and Welsh Parliament elections are concerned, that is a, a devolved matter to, to set the date of of those polls. And um, the Scottish government has, as mentioned, already brought forward a bill that will provide a, a power for the election to be delayed by up to six months. Um, that bill has been uh, scrutinised and, and has gone through all its stages at uh, in, in, in the Scottish Parliament. So MSPs there voted on that. Um, the Welsh government is planning similar legislation that will both uh, create a power for the election to be delayed by up to six months. That will be subject to a two-thirds majority vote in, in the Welsh Parliament should they choose to, uh, to, to use that power in, in the event. And, and that legislation also has power to change how the election will take place as well in terms of postal and proxy voting. And then as far as the English elections are concerned, I think the UK government will uh, bring forward primary legislation if it is uh, to delay those polls. There are powers under under existing legislation to delay elections by order, uh, by, by secondary legislation, but those are not powers that can be used close to election day. There's a, there's a cutoff uh, that has already been passed. So yes, MPs will get a say in this, as will uh, elected representatives in Edinburgh and Cardiff. So that's who's got the power. I mean, Kate, what are they going to want to do? Whose advantage is it to postpone these? Oh, I think it would be a, a big advantage to the Conservative Party. Um, you know, local elections after um, a general election typically give the mood and show very strongly how people um, are feeling about the government. And I think Boris Johnson would probably be quite happy to just avoid this altogether and avoid having this poll, which might clearly show in some parts of the country um, his um, perhaps lack of popularity. I mean, I don't know that's what the, the outcome would be, but I just think that if we're to follow the, the usual form of this one year after a general election, it tends to be pretty bad for the um, the party that's uh, in charge at Westminster. Um, so yes, I think a bit of damage, uh, reputational damage limitation is probably something that Boris Johnson uh, would be happy to avoid. And he doesn't want to be losing councils. Um, he doesn't want to really be shown to be sort of having a weakening gr- grip um, during this time. Alex, just back on deliverology, then would you um what do you think of the list of um suggestions we've had of how to make these safe well i think i it's incumbent on the government to try to do everything possible to make the elections happen i i think i mean there, there needs to be there should be a very high bar for uh, postponing elections and i do think there are mechanisms by which people can vote safely and we've seen that in other countries. I suspect one of the barriers to doing that is the parties will be thinking about the long-term consequences of some of these innovations. So for example, as Akash was saying, if we see politicians encouraging people to vote by post, the political parties will be thinking, well, what does this mean for the long term? Are we then going to have a much higher proportion of people who vote by post? Is that good for the Labour Party? Is it worse for the Conservative Party because it's encouraging people who might uh, be voting Labour to, to vote? So they'll be thinking through the longer term political consequences of these things as well. And generally, the way the debate has tended to go, though I'm not sure the evidence entirely stacks this up, is that making it easier to vote 
helps the Labour Party in making it uh, harder to vote, helps uh, the uh, Conservative Party. So that, that will be playing out. But I, I, I think it, it, it should be incumbent on the government to explore all the possibilities and to be really clear that they will do everything possible to make these uh, elections happen. I, sh- I should just say, actually, you know, the Scottish elections are particularly important for Nicola Sturgeon because she wanted to use this to try and have a mandate to call for another independent referendum further down the line. So she will be extremely eager for this to go ahead as soon as possible because it bolsters her position in terms of the independence movement. Yeah. Nick, so when do you think the decision should be taken? Right now to give as much adjustment um, after a bit, right up against the elections, we reckon? I mean, absolutely, as soon as as soon as possible. As Alex said at the beginning, throughout the crisis, the government has hoped for the best, but failed to prepare for predictable and predicted events, leading to more disruption than was necessary. There are no perfect answers here. These are all difficult issues to deal with, but it would be far better to take early decisive action for a change. Well, we'll have to see whether when that uh, action is taken, if it is, or whether they go ahead. Let's turn to our final subject, and that is uh, Ministers Reflect, a revealing set of interviews published by the IFG today. And uh, that, that's uh, part of our Ministers Reflect series, where we go to ministers and say, what is it that struck you about being a minister? What was difficult? What was easy? What do you regret? What are you proud of? But joining us now is IFG Associate Director Tim Durrant, the invisible hand behind all these interviews. Hi, Tim. Hi, everyone. Great to have you with us. Give us a quick summary, Tim. What is this series and who have you got for us this time? So uh, Ministers Reflect is, um, as you say, Bronwyn, it's a, a series of interviews with, with people who've held ministerial office from going back over the last 20 and nearly 30 years now, actually. We've got people from, from all recent governments um, and from all the major parties. And uh, we talk to them about what, what daily life being a minister is like, but also what, what are the big issues, the big frustrations they found in their, their time in office and the big questions they had to deal with. This week, we are publishing interviews with Amber Rudd, um, who talks about um, having to resign um, following the, the Windrush scandal and the failings at the Home Office. During that, uh, we've got uh, a conversation with Andrea Leadsom, um, talking about um, being in the House of Commons during the, the peak Brexit drama. Greg Clark, who was Business Secretary um, uh, under Theresa May during the Brexit years, talks about relationships with business in that time. And um, Jeremy Wright, who was Attorney General, uh, talks about how Cameron and May differed in their approach to legal advice. Excellent. Do, do they speak candidly in your experience, or do you get the sense that they are professionally careful? No, I think they are pretty pretty open. They, you know, I think for a lot of them, they uh, perhaps sort of aren't expecting to go back into government or not immediately, and so they they have feel a bit more free to to talk about what it's really like. I think others who perhaps are hoping to go back into government definitely see it as a bit of an opportunity to perhaps burnish their credentials and show um, show off some of their successes from their time in government as well. Which, of course, we're suitably challenging about. So let, let, let's go into um, a couple of them. Amber Rudd and Jeremy Wright seem to look back fondly on the coalition years, don't they? Yeah, this is a, a recurring theme, actually, in, in our interviews with people who've been in office uh, who, during the coalition and since then. And if you think back to 2010, nobody was sure that the government would, would last the full term. But actually, compared to the kind of the uncertainty and the, the parliamentary difficulties that Cameron had with his small majority and then May had after the 2017 election when she moved to minority setting, the coalition was, was relatively straightforward. You know, they got most of their legislation through the, um, they had a, a decent majority in the House of Commons. 
And so it's a yeah, it's a it's a big contrast for a lot of ministers that because because of the division in Parliament and in the country um, after the referendum, the coalition was actually sort of an easier time to govern, um, despite there being two parties than um, than the more recent times. Obviously, those who um, when we hopefully speak to people who've served in uh, in Boris Johnson's government with an eighty plus majority, uh, we'll get a different story again. Yeah. And then going to some of those stormy moments of recent times, Andrea Ludson doesn't hold back in her account of her spat with the then Speaker John Burko, does she? No, she doesn't. So she she was leader of the House of Commons for a couple of years and she talks about how she would have nightly meetings with, with Burko and they both um, brought other people with them because of the level of vitriol, to use her word, that existed between them. So clearly, you know, that relationship uh, was not as smooth as you might hope. And again, I think that, that talks to the, the difficult relationship between parliament and government at that time. Obviously, personalities matter, and, and those two individuals uh, had a difficult relationship, but also it reflects that you know the, the difficult situation in parliament and the, the struggles that May's government had in trying to get its, its agenda and its business through the House of Commons. I was struck by what Amber Rudd said about Boris Johnson's attitude to women and the way that Parliament still represents a boys' club, in her view. Can you just tell us a bit what she said? Yeah, so what what she said was that you know it, there are uh, there is there is still this kind of boys' club uh, I, uh, sense in Parliament and that the networks and sort of who you know uh, matters. And and she said that she felt that this government in particular operated on, on that basis. You know that this was a kind of a theme of the way. Boris Johnson runs his government, perhaps in contrast to uh, Theresa May's premiership. Kate, do you think that that's right, uh, Amber Rudd's account of, of the feel of Parliament of this, of this government? Yeah, 100%. I think that's really accurate. And it's not just who we see on the TV. It's not just the cabinet ministers. It's it's obviously be- who's behind the scenes as well. Um, top advisors, top spokespeople that are liaising with the media. I mean, I can think of weeks and weeks that have gone by where as a journalist a lobby journalist you are you are really only ever speaking to men you know from the bottom to the top um and that is very frustrating but i would say it's something that i think allegra stratton um who's been uh, brought on board, is is really really aware of and it was highlighted very recently that um a woman hadn't done the day uh, the downing street press conference for around eight months and that was very swiftly rectified and we saw pretty patel um the, uh, doing the press conference this week. So, you know, there are really impressive senior women um, political advisors that work within government. Um, we just really don't get to speak to them um, as much as we should. And at the very, very top, um, there's very few women indeed. And in the case of Allegra Stratton, who's hired to be the daily face of the government, we haven't actually got to see her yet. She hasn't appeared. Because I feel <laughs> it's, 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 uh, it's not the right time. It's too precarious a time to launch this um, this revolution in, in the presentation. I think that's correct and probably a wise decision to take. Um, we, the public are used to the daily press conferences, um, whether you like them or not, um, although I know they're not daily all the time. Um, and I think to introduce a new TV model um, would have been slightly confusing for the public. It also disrupts the way that lobby journalists do their job as well because um, we to having the briefing go on behind the scenes and then to have one that's televised, that would be really new for us. And, I, I, you know, we're adaptable, we could cope, but I just think in this time the government probably recognise that continuity is the best. But I would just say I think Allegra is already having a really um, positive influence um, and she certainly gets on the calls 
she answers questions and she is happy to to have her name printed as well um, for the job that she's doing. That's another level of transparency that we haven't always had. That's, that's good to know. Nick, um, from your long experience um, the, of these things, what does it ministers find most difficult in getting stuff done? Because this does come up in the minister's reflect interviews. Uh, in terms of getting things done, I, clearly uh, a lot of uh, collaboration um, is often required, um, both within departments and across departments. And as we've seen uh, throughout the crisis um, with other parts of government as well, be that uh, local authorities or NHS trusts, um, etc. Um, clearly, it's also hard to get things done if you're not getting a clear steer um, from the top um, about um, what is expected. Uh, and I think, as we've discussed here and it has been discussed uh, a lot on the, on this podcast, the, the Prime Minister hasn't been providing a um, a clear direction and has, hasn't kind of stepped in where there have been uh, disagreements uh, between his um, cabinet ministers. Mm-hmm. Well, Alex, you work at the heart of government um, and, and help ministers try and get these things done. Uh, where do they turn for advice in, in this, this difficult business of um, making it happen? Well, obviously, first and foremost, Institute for Government reports and um, uh, ministers reflect. But, you know, now I've, now I've d- done that. The, um, uh, you know, beyond that, um, uh, I think there are a few different sources. One is, one is their colleagues um, and learning from others who've been around government for longer. Uh, and one reflection, I think, is that's why ministers who have a kind of wide network of colleagues have a faction, have people that they can trust and rely on to talk to things like this, tend to be um, more successful in government, at least uh, sort of in the early and midpoints of their um, careers. Uh, the other uh, sort of institutional people who who they might turn to, um, uh, Tim and others have talked a lot about special advisors. And uh, those are the people who, until Dominic Cummings uh, grabbed control of them, at least, uh, were, uh, you know, in theory, personally loyal to and appointed by uh, a Secretary of State. And, you know, the the, the people in a department who they could uh, really rely on to be on their side. That was one of the reasons why uh, uh, creating a direct line into into number 10 for the special advisors was uh, was quite damaging for individual ministers. And then the, the third group of people uh, are the civil servants and particularly uh, private secretaries and a minister should be able to rely on their principal private secretary or their private secretary to um, to help kind of steer them through the vagaries of government to point out who might have a a, a different interest to to advise them on you know which which particular button to press or uh, uh, approach to take in order to get done what they what they want to want to do so so private office is really important for uh, for helping ministers uh, navigate their way through the system and get their uh, get get their priorities uh, uh, implemented. Thanks. So, Tim, uh, where can we find these interviews? And are there any more coming, or have you got to wait for a big reshuffle to push more out the door? Um, the interviews are on the Institute's website, so there's a link on our on our homepage. It's easy to find. And, uh, yeah, we, we have plenty more in the pipeline. So we are interviewing various junior ministers uh, who, who were in government over the May and, uh, indeed, some of the Cameron years as well. Um, and, uh, yes, we will be keeping an eye out for if there are any reshuffles and any um any former secretaries of state find themselves at a loose end, we're always very happy to talk to them. Excellent. Well, that's it for another week. My great thanks to Alex Thomas, Nick Davies, Akash Pound, Tim Durham, and especially to Kate Proctor for joining us. If you enjoy this podcast, do check out our sister podcast. That's called IFG Live. And there's lots of terrific new discussions and interviews in the pipeline. You can find them all at our website, Institute for Government. Dot org.uk, as well as the work that we've just been discussing with Tim. 
can find all our podcasts at iTunes, Acast, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Please do leave us a review, good, bad, whatever. We're really happy to hear from you. We're going to be back next week. Until then, stay safe, keep your distance, but not, of course, from inside briefing. <laughs>